Chapter Seven of the Story of Electricity. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. The Story of Electricity by John Munro. Chapter Seven: Electric Light and Heat. The electric spark was, of course, familiar to the early experimenters with electricity, but the electric light, as we know it, was first discovered by Sir Humphrey Davy, the Cornish philosopher, in the year 1811 or thereabout. With the magic of his genius, Davy transformed the spark into a brilliant glow by passing it between two points of carbon instead of metal. If, as in figure 60, we twist the wires, plus and minus, which come from a voltaic battery, say of 20 cells, about two carbon pencils, and bring their tips together in order to start the current, then draw them a little apart, we shall produce an artificial or mimic star. A sheet of dazzling light, which is called the electric arc, is seen to bridge the gap. It is not a true flame, for there is little combustion, but rather a nebulous blaze of silvery lustre in a bluish veil of heated air. The points of carbon are white-hot, and the positive is eaten away into a hollow or crater by the current, which violently tears its particles from their seat and whirls them into the fierce vortex of the arc. The negative remains pointed, but it is also worn away about half as fast as the positive. This wasting of the carbons tends to widen the arc too much and break the current. Hence, in arc lamps meant to yield the light for hours, the sticks are made of a good length, and a self-acting mechanism feeds them forward to the arc as they are slowly consumed, thus maintaining the splendour of the illumination. Many ingenious lamps have been devised by Serrin, Dubosc, Siemens, Brocchi, and others, some regulating the arc by clockwork and electromagnetism, or by thermal and other effects of the current. They are chiefly used for lighting halls and railway stations, streets and open spaces, searchlights and lighthouses. They are sometimes naked but as a rule their brightness is tempered by globes of ground or opal glass. In searchlights a parabolic mirror projects all the rays in any one direction, and in lighthouses the arc is placed in the focus of the condensing lenses, and the beam is visible for at least twenty or thirty miles on clear nights. Very powerful arc lights, equivalent to hundreds of thousands of candles, can be seen for a hundred or a hundred and fifty miles. Figure 61 illustrates the Pilsen lamp, in which the positive carbon G runs on rollers, RR, through the hollow interior of two solenoids or coils of wire, M, M1, and carries at its middle a spindle-shaped piece of soft iron, C. The current flows through the solenoid M on its way to the arc, but a branch or shunted portion of it flows through the solenoid M1, and as both of these solenoids act as electromagnets on the soft iron C, each tending to suck it into its interior, 
the iron rests between them when their powers are balanced. When, however, the arc grows too wide, and the current therefore becomes too weak, the shunt solenoid M1 gains a purchase over the main solenoid M, and pulling the iron core towards it, feeds the positive carbon to the arc. In this way, the balance of the solenoids is readjusted, the current regains its normal strength, the arc its proper width, and the light its brilliancy. Figure 62 is a diagrammatic representation of the brush arc lamp. X and Y are the line terminals connecting the lamp in circuit. On the one hand, the current splits and passes around the hollow spools HH1, thence to the rod N through the carbon K, the arc, the carbon K1, and thence through the lamp frame to Y. On the other hand, it runs in a resistance fine wire coil around the magnet T, thence to Y. The operation of the lamp is as follows. K and K1 being in contact, a strong current starts through the lamp, energizing H and H1, which suck in their core pieces N and S, lifting C, and by it the washer clutch W and the rod N and carbon K, establishing the arc. K is lifted until the increasing resistance of the lengthening arc weakens the current in HH1 and a balance is established. As the carbons burn away, C gradually lowers until a stop under W holds it horizontal and allows N to drop through W and the lamp starts anew. If for any reason the resistance of the lamp becomes too great or the circuit is broken, the increased current through T draws up its armature, closing the contacts M, thus short-circuiting the lamp through a thick, heavy wire coil on T, which then keeps M closed and prevents the dead lamp from interfering with the others on its line. Numerous modifications of this lamp are in very general use. Davy also found that a continuous wire or stick of carbon could be made white-hot by sending a sufficient current through it, and this fact is the basis of the incandescent lamp now so common in our homes. Wires of platinum, iridium, and other inoxidizable metals raised to incandescence by the current are useful in firing mines, but they are not quite suitable for yielding a light, because at a very high temperature they begin to melt. Every solid body becomes red-hot, that is to say, emits rays of red light, at a temperature of about a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Yellow rays at thirteen hundred degrees, blue rays at fifteen hundred degrees, and white light at two thousand degrees. It is found, however, that as the temperature of a wire is pushed beyond this figure, the light emitted becomes far more brilliant than the increase of temperature would seem to warrant. It therefore pays to elevate the temperature of the filament as high as possible. Unfortunately, the most refractory metals, such as platinum and alloys of platinum with iridium, fuse at a temperature of about 3,450 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Electricians have therefore forsaken metals and fallen back on carbon for producing a light. In 1845, Mr. State devised an incandescent lamp consisting of a fine rod or stick of carbon rendered white hot by the current, and to preserve the carbon from burning in the atmosphere, he enclosed it in a glass bulb, from which the air was exhausted by an air pump. Edison and Swan, in 1878 and subsequently, went a step further, and substituted a filament or fine thread of carbon for the rod. The new lamp united the advantages of wire in point of form with those of carbon as a material. The Edison filament was made by cutting thin slips of bamboo and charring them the swan by carbonizing linen fibre with sulphuric acid. It was subsequently found that a hard skin could be given to the filament by flashing it, that is to say, heating it to incandescence by the current in an atmosphere of hydrocarbon gas. The filament thus treated becomes dense and resilient. Figure 63 represents an ordinary glow lamp of the Edison Swan type, where E is the filament moulded into a loop and cemented to two platinum wires or electrodes, P, penetrating the glass bulb L, which is exhausted of air. Platinum is chosen because it expands and contracts with temperature about the same as glass, and hence there is little chance of the glass cracking through unequal stress. The vacuum in the bulb is made by a mercurial air pump of the Spangel sort, and the pressure of air in it is only about one millionth of an atmosphere. The bulb is fastened with a holder like that shown in figure 64, where two little hooks, H, connected to screw terminals TT, are provided to make contact with the platinum terminals of the lamp. P, figure 63, and the spiral spring, by pressing on the bulb, ensures a good contact. Figure 65 is a cut of the ordinary Edison lamp and socket. One end of the filament is connected to the metal screw ferrule at the base. The other end is attached to the metal button in the centre of the extreme bottom of the base. Screwing the lamp into the socket automatically connects the filament on one end to the screw, on the other to an insulated plate at the bottom of the socket. The resistance of such a filament hot is about 200 ohms, and to produce a good light from it the battery or dynamo ought to give an electromotive force of at least 100 volts. Few voltaic cells or accumulators have an electromotive force of more than 2 volts, Therefore we require a battery of 50 cells joined in series, each cell giving 2 volts, and the whole set 100 volts. The strength of current in the circuit must also be taken into account. To yield a good light, such a lamp requires or takes about half an ampere. Hence the cells must be chosen with regard to their size and internal resistance, as well as to their kind so that when the battery in series is connected to the lamp, the resistance of the whole circuit, including the filament or lamp, the battery itself, and the connecting wires, shall give by Ohm's law a current of half an ampere. 
it will be understood that the current has the same strength in every part of the circuit, no matter how it is made up. Thus, if half of an ampere is flowing in the lamp, it is also flowing in the battery and wires. An Edison Swan lamp of this model gives the light of about 15 candles, and is well adapted for illuminating the interior of houses. The temperature of the carbon filament is about 3,450 degrees Fahrenheit, that is to say, the temperature at which platinum melts. Similar lamps of various sizes and shapes are also made, some equivalent to as many as a hundred candles, and fitted for large halls or streets, others emitting a tiny beam like the spark of a glow-worm, and designed for medical examinations, or lighting flowers, jewels, and dresses in theatres or ballrooms. The electric incandescent lamp is pure and healthy, since it neither burns nor pollutes the air. It is also cool and safe, for it produces little heat, and cannot ignite any inflammable stuffs near it. Hence its peculiar merit as a light for colliers working in fiery mines. Independent of air, it acts equally well under water, and is therefore used by divers. Moreover, it can be fixed wherever a wire can be run, does not tarnish gilding, and lends itself to the most artistic decoration. Electric lamps are usually connected in circuit on the series, parallel, and three-wire system. The series system is shown in figure 66, where the lamps, LL, follow each other in a row like beads on a string. It is commonly reserved for the arc lamp, which has a resistance so low that a moderate electromotive force can overcome the added resistance of the lamps. But of course, if the circuit breaks at any point, all the lamps go out. The parallel system is illustrated in figure 67, where the lamps are connected between two main conductors crosswise, like the steps of a ladder. The current is thus divided into cross-channels, like water used for irrigating fields, and it is obvious that, although the circuit is broken at one point, say by the rupture of a filament, all the lamps do not go out. Figure 68 exhibits the Edison three-wire system, in which two batteries or dynamos are connected together in series, and a third or central main conductor is run from their middle poles. The plan saves a return wire, for if two generators had been used separately, four mains would have been necessary. The parallel and three-wire systems in various groups, with or without accumulators as local reservoirs, are chiefly employed for incandescent lamps. The main conductors conveying the current from the dynamos are commonly of stout copper, insulated with air, like telegraph wires, or cables coated with india rubber or gutta percha, and buried underground or suspended overhead. The branch and lamp conductors, or leads, are finer wires of copper, insulated with india rubber or silk. The current of an installation or section of one is made and broken at will by means of a switch or key turned by hand. It is simply a series of metal contacts insulated from each other and connected to the conductors, with a sliding contact connected to the dynamo 
which travels over them. To guard against an excess of current on the lamps, cutouts or safety fuses are inserted between the switch and the conductors, or at other leading points in the circuit. They are usually made of short slips of metal foil or wire, which melt or deflagrate when the current is too strong, and thus interrupt the circuit. There is some prospect of the luminosity excited in a vacuum tube by the alternating currents from a dynamo or an induction coil becoming an illuminant. Crookes has obtained exquisitely beautiful glows by the phosphorescence of gems and other minerals in a vacuum bulb like that shown in figure 69, where A and B are the metal electrodes on the outside of the glass. A heap of diamonds from various countries emit red, orange, yellow, green, and blue rays. Ruby, sapphire, and emerald give a deep red, crimson, or lilac phosphorescence, and sulphate of zinc a magnificent green glow. Tesla has also shown that vacuum bulbs can be lit inside without any outside connection with the current, by means of an apparatus like that shown in figure 70 where D is an alternating dynamo, C a condenser, PS the primary and secondary coils of a sparking transformer, TT two metal sheets or plates, and SB the exhausted bulbs. The alternating or seesaw current in this case charges the condenser and excites the primary coil P, while the induced current in the secondary coil S charges the terminal plates TT. So long as the bulbs or tubes are kept within the space between the plates, they are filled with a soft radiance, and it is easy to see that if these plates covered the opposite walls of a room, the vacuum lamps would yield a light in any part of it. Electric heating bids fair to become almost as important as electric illumination. When the arc was first discovered, it was noticed that platinum, gold, quartz, ruby, and diamond, in fine the most refractory minerals, were melted in it and ran like wax. Ores and salts of the metals were also vaporized, and it was clear that a powerful engine of research had been placed in the hands of the chemist. As a matter of fact, the temperature of the carbons in the arc is comparable to that of the sun. It measures 5,000 to 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and is the highest artificial heat known. Sir William Siemens was among the first to make an electric furnace heated by the arc, which fused and vaporized metallic ores so that the metal could be extracted from them. Aluminium, chromium, and other valuable metals are now smelted by its means, and rough brilliance, such as those found in diamond mines and meteoric stones, have been crystallized from the fumes of carbon, like hoar-frost in a cold mist. The electric arc is also applied to the welding of wires, boiler-plates, rails, and other metalwork by heating the parts to be joined and fusing them together. Cooking and heating by electricity are coming more and more into favor owing to their cleanliness and convenience. Kitchen ranges, including ovens and grills, entirely heated by the electric current, are finding their way into the best houses and hotels. 
Most of these are based on the principle of incandescence, the current heating a fine wire or other conductor of high resistance in passing through it. Figure 71 represents an electric kettle of this sort, which requires no outside fire to boil it, since the current flows through fine wires of platinum or some highly resisting metal embedded in fireproof insulating cement in its bottom. Figures 72 and 73 are a saucepan and a flat iron heated in the same way. Figure 74 is a cigar lighter for smoking rooms, the fusée F, consisting of short platinum wires, which become red-hot when it is unhooked, and at the same time the lamp Z is automatically lit. Figure 75 is an electric radiator for heating rooms and passages, after the manner of stoves and hot water pipes. Quilts for beds warmed by fine wires inside, have also been brought out, a constant temperature being maintained by a simple regulator, and it is not unlikely that personal clothing of the kind will soon be at the service of invalids and chilly mortals, more especially to make them comfortable on their travels. An ingenious device places an electric heater inside a hot water bag, thus keeping it at a uniform temperature for sick room and hospital use. End of chapter 7